Welcome back to Pete's Grip. I'm Zach Hodges, a pediatric ICU fellow from UT Southwestern in Dallas. And I'm Alice Shanklin, a critical care fellow at Children's National in Washington, D.C. Alice, will you remind our listeners what we do here at Pete's Grip? Absolutely. Pete's Crit is an educational pick you podcast. We're looking for the best bedside teaching spiels from around the country and the world, and we're putting them on the internet for you. Yes, we have a very important topic today. What are we discussing? Today, we're talking to Dr. Alexis Topchin about post-cardiac arrest care. This is a really important topic and unfortunately a frequent one. And so I am so excited that you were able to recruit her. And Dr. Topshin really does not need an introduction. She is so active in this area of research, but she's a professor of anesthesiology and critical care at the University of Pennsylvania. She's an intensivist at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, where she also serves as the fellowship director of neurocritical care. And she was the first author on the 2019 Pediatric Post-Cardiac Arrest Care Scientific Statement from the American Heart Association. Yes, Zach, I have to tell you that here at Pete's Crit, we do believe in reading. And there are papers we like, and there are papers we love. And then there's a third category of papers that I copy and paste into an email draft. So as soon as it's applicable to someone who's interested, I can forward the article. And these 2019 pediatric post-arrest guidelines fall into that category. I really highly recommend reading them if you have not. It was a great document. It certainly made designing this podcast episode so much easier. We do like reading a little bit. Occasionally. But we like podcasting more. Let's get right to the content. Welcome back to Pedscript. We are so excited today to be joined by Dr. Topshin to discuss this very important topic. To get things started, will you please tell us something about yourself and something you enjoy outside of medicine? Well, thank you so much for having me today. What do I enjoy outside of medicine? So I have been an avid sailor since college. And so I I sail weekly, I have a boat. And what I really love about it is it's a really good combination of luck of the wind and then strategy. And that's a lot like the work that we do. So um, that is one of my favorite hobbies. And will you tell us how you became interested in this topic, post-cardiac arrest care? And what are your current areas of research? So when I was a second-year resident, I was really interested in finding some research to answer a question. And I reached out to my mentor at the time, Vinay Nadkarni, and he said, oh, we have this project looking at bloodstream biomarkers after cardiac arrest. And so I, I dove into that thinking that would be really exciting. And like most very enthusiastic residents, I found myself biting off a pretty large chunk. So I was <laughs> in the ICU in the middle of the night, you know, helping get blood drawn on these patients. And when we finally had the data, which took as usual, way longer than I thought. What was really exciting is that we saw a pattern in terms of the association of NSE and S100 beta with outcomes. And so that really piqued my interest that there may be ways to at least prognosticate or get an idea of outcomes early after cardiac arrest. And so that was really my first entree into the post-cardiac arrest area, which was a little bit of serendipity, I think, as most research is. And then over the early years of my career, there was a statement that came out in 2008, which was the post-cardiac arrest statement that was for adults. And I opened that up and at the back, there was a gap section. And actually, before I even got to the gap section, there was a section called special circumstances and in there was pediatrics. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh, we're a special circumstance. And so we were a gap section. And I thought, you know what? This is what I want to do. I want to start tackling all the gaps for children so that we're not a special circumstance, we actually have our own approach to taking care of these kids post-arrest. And so that's sort of what got me started. And I would say with really extraordinary mentorship and support, I was really able to start doing that. 
Oh, wow. Um, yeah, it was pretty cool. It's pretty neat to now be here looking back and seeing where I've had the ability to go. And it's really exciting to see others who have similar interests, maybe in slightly different areas, and be able to support them to do the same. The hot topics or the, the really areas that I'm super passionate about are interventions that can improve outcome. And I know we'll talk a little bit about those, especially targeted temperature management and hemodynamics. So I'm really interested in stratification of injury early after arrest because a one-size-fits-all approach clearly doesn't work. And we have many negative trials, but I don't think that's because therapies don't work. It's really because we have to pick the right patients to give the right therapy to. And then I think the third component is neuroprognostication and thinking about the timing of making decisions and guiding families so that we give children the best chance of the best outcome. I really appreciate your look forward and backward, especially punctuated by the fact that you did author these guidelines, right? That that was your goal and you made a full circle. What advice do you have for someone who's starting their PICU fellowship or who's in residency looking towards their PICU fellowship in terms of getting involved in this area of research? So I think there are a few things that are really important. The first is, is that you have to find a mentor who is going to support you. It's really hard to go it alone. You have to have someone who has the ideas and that is willing to take the time to invest in your thought processes and developing you and developing ideas. I think you have to be passionate about what you do because the work is hard and it's time consuming. And I think, as we all know, this is a hard patient population, depending upon whether it's out of hospital or in hospital arrest, the outcomes can be tough. And so you have to be really passionate when you find what it is that exactly you want to do and be committed. And then you got to be willing to get your hands dirty. So, you know, whether it's drawing the blood in the middle of the night or having those tough conversations with people or working with co-fellows or research assistants or other um, providers in the unit to really try and get things done, you have to be willing to sort of be on the front lines to get those things done. Mm -hmm. But I think globally, if you have sort of the desire finding just the one person that's going to help support you and get you started is really, really important. Nice. Really appreciate hearing all the mentorships. One of the best parts of our project here is we get to be mentored, I guess, virtually by guests all across the country who have been extremely successful. I really appreciate you sharing that with us and also our listeners. The last question before we jump into our topic for the day, any relevant conflicts of interest to disclose before we get started? Um, so I think people know that I am a co-chair of the AHA PALS 2025 guidelines. I am a NIH-funded multi-PI on the P-ICE-CAP trial, and I am a task force member for the International Liaison Committee on Resuscitation, PAL, or PLS task force. But those are just intellectual conflicts. They are not financial conflicts. Sure. And I see them all, all as things that make you a perfect guest for today's topic. Alice, you want to give us our case? Absolutely. So you're coming into service. You've got a 12-year-old boy who suffered a cardiac arrest while playing basketball. He received bystander CPR, but ROSC was not achieved until 20 minutes later when EMS found that he had a shockable rhythm and he was able to be defibrillated. He was intubated in the field and taken to a local ED where he was found to have no verbal response or eye movements, but was withdrawing to painful stimuli. Now they're calling you and they want to transfer him to CHOP for further management. So Unfortunately, this is a common story, and Zach and I both relate to this very deeply. Broadly speaking, when you're admitting one of these kids after cardiac arrest, what are the key features of the post-arrest syndrome are at the top of your priority list, and how do these manifest at the bedside? 
So this is great to take this sort of from the outside hospital to the unit. So these patients are, are really complicated, and they're especially complicated when they're not in your house to start, right? They're in an outside ER, which means mm-hmm. that you have to sort of combine the things that are your priorities that you're really worried about and how to support another team in taking care of these patients and optimizing care. When I think about these patients, I think about the numerous components of the post-arrest syndrome. So brain injury and what impacts ongoing brain injury. So we know these patients have primary brain injury from the hypoxia and ischemia of being in a no-flow and a low-flow state. But we're really worried about secondary brain injury after they have returned spontaneous circulation. We're worried about myocardial dysfunction, um, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. We know that's going to be coming um, for many of these patients. We know that there's a systemic ischemia and reperfusion response, which looks similar to a sepsis-like syndrome. And then we know that many of these patients have persistence of whatever caused the arrest to begin with. So in a patient like this, we don't know, did this kid have an undiagnosed cardiomyopathy? Did he have an undiagnosed channelopathy? And is this sort of a quick arrhythmia and now that's gone? Or is he going to have ongoing arrhythmia or ongoing pre-arrest cardiac issues that we don't know about yet? Mm. So those are sort of the four key components that I think about when I think about all of these patients. But what we really need to think about is now you've got this patient in an outside hospital and you and your team, so maybe the fellow on the phone, have to really think about how to guide them because they are not in a situation where they can necessarily think about all these components. They're just trying to stabilize and send. Oftentimes, I will tackle exactly the components and how that's impacted by the post-arrest syndrome, so what post-arrest care needs to be provided. So in that time frame, you worry about oxygenation and ventilation, The patient's intubated. That's fantastic. You want to make sure they're not hypoxic and you want them to do the best they can to support normal ventilation and normal oxygenation. Oftentimes, patients have a normal blood pressure immediately after arrest because they've received epi. Sometimes they don't, but you know hypotension's coming. And so I will oftentimes guide transport teams and outside hospitals to have an epi infusion, put it in line, give really clear targets of what you want that blood pressure to be, and talk about when you're going to have them turn that on. And that's way better than putting someone in a truck without a presser infusion and have them Mm -hmm. calling you back where all you have is either fluids or maybe just bolusing dilute epi. So really anticipating. And then I ask usually to check for temperature. So for our little guys, maybe not a 12-year-old, sometimes they get actually quite hypothermic and you're trying to maintain a temperature so they don't drop too low. And sometimes patients are febrile and you think a little bit about at least giving them antipyretics before they get on the road. Mm -hmm. Usually cooling these patients in transport is something or preventing fever is something that's a little bit more challenging to do. So I think the most important thing is to really create a shared mental model for the team that's with the patient, the team that's going to be transporting the patient and really listing sort of our priorities to get the patient to us safely. And I'd say that in this case, you know, recurrent arrhythmia is definitely something that you may be worried about myocardial dysfunction, but some of those things you just have to be prepared for and then monitor mm-hmm. more around. Mm-hmm. Sure. I really appreciate that fundamental clinical approach. Early in my fellowship training, one of the most intimidating things is being on the phone in the transfer center when you have this mm-hmm. really critically ill kid who's in this very resource poor setting. I think focusing on the fundamentals of oxygenation, ventilation, and perfusion certainly is helpful. Maybe a, checking a glucose might be helpful as well, especially in our younger kids. Yep. Let me update our case, then we'll give you our next question. So guiding by your care over the phone, the patient arrives in your PICU. GCS remains six. Pupils are equal and reactive. He's initiating spontaneous breaths on the ventilator. So as these patients come through your doors and arrive in your ICU, generally speaking, what are your immediate, like over the next one to two hours and your short term, over the next shift, what are your goals for their care? 
Yeah. So I think the first thing is it's always great when they arrive in your ICU, right? Because you've got numerous Mm -hmm. people to help you. We have over the years created a pathway to really help us be very comprehensive and guide our care. But I think the first thing that I think about when these kids roll in the door is, are they neurologically back to their baseline or is there evidence of neurologic injury? And so clearly here, you're telling me the child's GCS is six. I'm presuming that they've gotten maybe some sedation, but enough of that sedation is cleared so that we're saying this child has brain injury. And that immediately takes us down a path for this particular patient where we have to think about how do we minimize secondary brain injury and secondary organ injury, give them the best chance of getting out of the hospital. So I think there are a number of ways to do that, and you can parse this in a number of ways, but I think if you start most simplistically with thinking about airway and breathing, so what they're doing on the ventilator. So we focus on oxygenation goals, which I think is actually the toughest one because everybody loves a patient that's saturating 100%. Mm -hmm. But we think about minimizing hypoxia and minimizing hyperoxia. So we target a saturation usually of 94 to 98%, and then we target normal carbia. Now, that can be difficult when you have ARDS, and some of these patients do post-arrest, but we definitely put that on the list of things that we look for. The primary things that I usually do when patients come in is rapidly get a blood pressure, rapidly get their temperature, and then we rapidly get this neurologic exam. And you have to make a decision about what you're going to do with their temperature. So core temperature monitoring is critically important, and I get that up front and make a decision about whether I'm going to use targeted temperature management to normothermia or targeted temperature management to hypothermia. For this patient, I would get access very quickly, so an arterial line and a central line, because I really think you need to know what that blood pressure looks like, and you know you're at risk for recurrent arrhythmia. So monitoring for that, as well as stable central access so that you can treat with whatever you need to. There's nothing more stressful than not having stable access when you need to give resuscitative medications. And then a Foley catheter to really monitor end organ perfusion from the kidneys. I think that the baseline labs are always really helpful. They not only give you a sense of the severity of arrest, but ways that you can potentially optimize some of the derangements post-arrest. So we quickly, once we have our basic sort of assessments, I really think about what do I need to tell my team? What blood pressure are we targeting? Because we're going to be doing all of these things. And while we're putting in those lines, we still want to make sure that we're maintaining a blood pressure target that we think is going to adequately perfuse the brain and the other organs. And so with that, while we're moving ahead, it's putting an epi infusion up through a peripheral line, have it ready to go, say out loud, hey, this is the target blood pressure we're going to use. You know, if people see that it's below that, someone needs to call that out because we're going to start epi. If the ionized calcium is low, we're going to treat with calcium, right? Or do we have fluids in the room? We're going to give fluids. And then we do a fair amount of EEG monitoring where we are. So we get EEG in the room so that they can hook them up so we can see early on if we have evidence of seizures. And then we give sedation. I think it's hard to give up your neurologic exam, but we think that a quieted brain is far better than having a child who is thrashing or or posturing on that bed while we're doing these things, which is just increasing the metabolic demand on the brain. That was a great response. And a lot of great clinical questions can come from that. So I just want to take them one by one. First, I want to focus on ventilation. I find that in some of these kids who are post-arrest, if they don't have significant lung disease, they will have a a large metabolic acidosis and they'll have a large stimulus to, to breathe. And it's not uncommon that their CO2s will be 15 or 20. It seems like this is a patient with your sedation that you mentioned that you might sedate them some to normalize that CO2. Is that correct? 
Yeah. So I think, you know, you always have to balance factors. We never get exactly what we want. So what you don't want is a pH of 7.0 because that's going to impact other things. So while the target is the target we want to get to because of the way it will potentially impact cerebral vasodilation and cerebral vasoconstriction, you have to manage the whole body. I think with the significant metabolic acidosis early on, even while sedated, I would probably target getting my pH above 7.2573 to support the myocardium while we're resuscitating. With the goal of getting to an end title or a PACO2 of 35 to 45, but knowing being hypotensive or at higher risks of arrhythmia is maybe actually worse. And so it's sort of constantly balancing and then shifting your goals and taking into account these multiple factors. Once my pH is in a better state, then yes, I think that sometimes you have to titrate the ventilator in order to get to where you want to be. Hmm. Zach, I feel like I would just give that patient some bicarb. <laughs> I think you're trying to stir the pot there. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Sorry for uh, the pot, Alice. <laughs> uh, um, I think another question that I commonly have at the bedside is what blood pressure target are we going to focus on for this patient? Fifth percentile, 50th percentile, do we assume they have elevated intracranial hypertension? What's your take on that? So, you know, the literature that's been published shows greater than the fifth percentile, but that was really just early data where we picked a number. Lo and behold, yes, if your blood pressure is less than the fifth percentile, that's not good for you. But what we haven't really shown in pediatrics, and even not so clearly in adults, is what blood pressure should you actually target to improve outcomes? And we just don't have that data. I think many of us would surmise that lower blood pressure is probably worse because it leads to lower cerebral perfusion. Then again, if you have abnormal cerebral autoregulation, too much blood pressure may be a problem as well. For us locally here, what we've decided to do is we target somewhere between the 25th to 50th based on sort of age groupings, knowing that less than the fifth is probably too low, but knowing that we don't have a real target yet. And then you can't discount the fact that using pressors to maintain a number may actually be pro-arrhythmogenic mm-hmm. um, and may not actually be great for your heart. And so I think with that, like everything, you have to factor in risk and benefit. But I usually target somewhere between the 25th and 50th percentile, but accounting for the side effects of the medications and knowing that sometimes that just may be challenging or maybe fraught with more risk. What about if they start to get hypertensive? You're balancing myocardium, cerebral perfusion. How do you approach this? Yeah. So for the patient that's hypertensive after arrest off presser, I think sometimes you have to ask yourself why. So it's, it's not uncommon early after arrest, after getting a fair amount of epinephrine to see some early hypertension. Some of the patients, although they are encephalopathic, are still sort of responding to stimulus. And so they have brain injury. And so sedation can be helpful. One of the questions people say is, well, should we start an icardipine infusion or should we drive that blood pressure down? I'm usually very, very reticent to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the question is, why are they hypertensive? So, you know, you can always put, is there severe urinary retention, I guess, and put in a Foley. But I'm oftentimes reticent to drive the blood pressure down early unless I have a clear reason why because I expect that a slump is coming. So hypotension usually in a severe arrest is going to come from myocardial depression, as well as some vasoplegia and systemic vasodilation. Unless there's a clear reason, like you're worried about a intracranial hemorrhage that you've had Mm -hmm. and you don't want to run high, I tend not to do that. I should say for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, especially where the etiology of arrest may not be clear, we oftentimes will head CT You can have a kid who swims in a pool and has a sudden arrest, and oh, that's when their aneurysm blew. Mm -hmm. And while it's unlikely that you're going to find something overt, 
it is really important to rule out potential causes of arrest that may be a cult in the brain that could impact some of your decision making. Something that I found interesting is using sedation in these patients. And it's not the most common where I train is sedating these post-arrest kids just because of the value of the neurologic exam. Interested in knowing particularly which agents you might use, why I would anticipate your very short acting agents and how do you titrate the sedation? Do you want them not over breathing on the ventilator? Give us some more information there. What's really important for these patients is in the post-arrest period, you are treating these patients to minimize ongoing brain injury. And so to have a patient that's being thermoregulated on a blanket who may be posturing or maybe agitated is not going to be good for their brain. The advantage of sedation is to quiet the brain while you're giving time for the post-arrest syndrome to improve. And so I think there are inherent advantages to sedating these patients. You're decreasing metabolic stimulus. I use a fair amount of sedation, at least early on. Now, what to target? And I guess the value of the neuro exam. So a neurologic exam is really important. The problem is, is that sometimes to get a neuro exam, you have patients who are under sedated. In an ideal world, you have an EEG on, which is allowing you to monitor the patient's background and monitor for seizures. You've got a pupillary exam and a cough and a gag. If the patients are adequately sedated, and we use the SBS goal here, mm-hmm. a minus two, and you find that you're not requiring additional sedation and your concerns that patients may be over sedated or they may have evolving progressive encephalopathy underneath, I think weaning sedation is really important. But I think that we find there are times where people have these patients who are clearly uncomfortable, not at their baseline and agitated, and people don't want to sedate because they don't want to lose the exam. And I would actually say you may not be effectively giving a treatment at that point in time, and that may not be optimal. In terms of what sedatives to use, so the world has changed a lot in the last 10 and 15 years with the advent of dexmedetomidine. I think we oftentimes will use a narcotic, and then we either will use dexmedetomidine or some low-dose benzodiazepine. Different centers use different medications. Benzos are falling out of favor for obvious reasons. Dexmedetomidine is lovely, but if you have a patient who's being cooled or you have concerns about worsening bradycardia, sometimes people are reticent to use it. I think you have to factor in what side effect profile. My general sense is narcotic alone is oftentimes not sufficient. Yeah, that makes sense. So you've got this intubated post-arrest patient in your ICU. What specialized monitoring and testing are you doing in terms of treading gases, EEG, pupillometry, in addition to your standard ICU monitoring? It's a great question. So it all depends upon the toys that you have. And I will Mm -hmm. first and foremost say that while we monitor and we know what we're looking for, we don't have a lot of data that shows any one of these things in particular improves outcome. I think that is really an area for us to explore in the future. How can we use some of this advanced monitoring to see if we can change the outcomes for our patients? So standard ICU monitoring, right? We have all of that. Our standard monitors, we're monitoring our urine output. Those are really, really helpful. Hemodynamically, we tend to get an early POCUS or an early echo on these patients to assess for myocardial dysfunction as well as structural heart disease. So are there things that we're missing? And there's ongoing work to determine how to factor that in and how the heart changes and recovers over time. We will use a mixed venous SAT along with that to assess for sort of our hypotension. And then we obviously trend our lactates as well. Neurologically is probably where some of the most exciting multimodal monitoring is happening. And there's still a lot of work to be done to figure out how to utilize that. EEG, we've used for a long time. I think it's a great seizure detector, but it also allows you to assess the background. And that's really important. It gives you a sense of what state the brain is in. 
And while seizures may be treatable with medications, you know, the background you're going to watch evolve over time. And clinicians can really utilize that as part of the neurologic exam. We use cerebral near-infrared spectroscopy. It's a trending tool. We look for asymmetry between the right and the left frontal regions. Clear association with outcomes post-arrest really don't exist. There is, I think, more in the research space work to be done to figure out how you may utilize that. And there may, may be a good trending tool. And then pupillometry has been pretty exciting in that we know that we're all really bad and inconsistent in terms of how we describe the pupils. And so using pupillometry gives us a little bit more of an objective measure of the pupillary size and the reactivity and then differences between the two. And in a patient population that's at high risk for herniation or, you know, pupils that are going to respond differently even before herniation, I think the addition of that is nicer, sort of more detailed monitor. And the neuroimaging. So I mentioned that we had CT. Many of our patients are out of hospital arrest when they come in to look for pathology, not for prognostication, not to predict outcome, but MRI in the three to seven day post-arrest range to look at the evidence of hypoxic ischemic brain injury and help some guiding of decision-making. I'll say most excitingly, some of the work that's being done here by one of my colleagues Matt Kirshen is looking at multimodal monitoring. So how do we integrate all of this information? So humans are inherently not great multitaskers, but with some of the technology that's out there, we're able to integrate all of these into devices with your hemodynamics, your respiratory, your EEG, your near-infrared, your blood pressure, and see if there are trends. And then there's exciting stuff out there looking at cerebral autoregulation using non-invasive methodologies, which is great. Invasive monitoring post-arrest is definitely not our standard, although there's some places in the country and the world where they're looking at that, which is also sort of cutting edge and interesting. Oh, wow. I'd like to ask you a follow-up question about using EEGs. As a trainee, it's easy to see how practical it is to know if a kid is seizing or not, and you can dictate your treatment based on that. And of course, if the EEG is isoelectric or flat, it's easy to see how that's clinically relevant. But is there anything other than those two that are clinically helpful for you? Another way to say this, like, how would interpreting the background EEG help you clinically those first couple of days? Yeah, so we work really closely with our neurologists. We're very fortunate we have a 24-7 EEG monitoring program, and our EEG technologists and our neurologists read them. You know, I think some of the literature out there about background really sort of guides a little bit in terms of injury stratification, right? So if things look burst suppressed or flat early, you're probably more concerned and may think about how what the outcome may look like, but may actually impact how you tailor treatment. The hope is down the road, we'll have a little bit more clarity. So when you look at the background and you see the evolution of background, that may influence a little bit about the direction in which you think things are going. We'll talk more about prognostication. I don't think you want to use it as an early prognosticator, but I think in terms of brain health, if you see changes in background that are worsening over time, that may give you a tip off that you may need to image earlier or think about the patient a little bit differently. As far as I know, there are no sort of documented treatments where when you see a pattern on EEG, you want to go ahead and give something to make it better. But monitoring background does give you a sense of sort of that brain health and whether or not you need to think about evaluations differently. And incorporating that with near-infrared and pupillometry can give you a sense of potential changes that may be happening in the brain as these patients are in that post-arrest period and at risk for secondary brain injury. Oh, wow. That does sound like an exciting project and topic. I have a very clinical question if you've got an out-of-hospital arrest that was either in the ED or transported and now they're intubated in your ICU and they don't have much of a neuro exam, I find myself at the decision point of, 
are we getting EEG leads on as soon as possible to ensure there's not a seizure that we need to treat immediately? Or are we deciding to CT them either with a portable CT, which takes a long time to coordinate, or just running them downstairs really quick? Is that a scenario that you find yourself in as well? Yes. Yeah, so it's a scenario we have, we always find ourselves in. So I will tell you the first thing we did to conquer that is we got CT compatible EEG electrodes. <laughs> what? That's amazing. <laughs> right? We also have MRI compatible EEG electrodes. So listen, CT compatible EEG electrodes means that you don't have to pick the order, right? But it's a really good question. And I think a lot of this comes back to the systems that people work in. So if you can get a CT really quickly, you may choose to do that first. If you can get an EEG really quickly, you may choose to do that first. They're both valid studies to get, and you have to think a little bit about the differential you're working with in that patient and the clinical exam that you have. But yeah, if you can have CT-compatible EEG electrodes, then you're, you're in pretty good shape. We oftentimes, you know, we'll give some Ativan. We may go on a midaz infusion, or we'll just load Keppra if we're concerned about seizures. And mm-hmm. in the schema of things, you know, it's hemodynamically well-tolerated, and if you're not in profound renal failure, the dosing is pretty clear. And, and sometimes we just get that in the background if we feel like we have to wait for an EEG for a little bit and we have a high suspicion for seizure. Mm, that tracks. You know, I don't want to misrepresent Children's National. You can really see the artifact, but they may be CT compatible, but it's really bright when you look at it. Well, it's a good project. It's a good QI project for somebody, right? Yeah. yeah. Opportunities, right? Opportunities, <laughs> yep. And thank you for listening to this episode of Pete's Crit. Please remember that all content during this episode is intended for informational and educational purposes only. It should not be used as replacement for medical advice. The views expressed during this episode by hosts and our guests are their own and do not reflect the official position of their institutions. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can email us at pedescriptpodcast at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at critpeds and at pedescrit on Instagram for real-time show updates. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review in your favorite podcasting application and share with your colleagues. Also, if you'd like to support the making of the podcast, please see the description for Venmo information and how to become a Patreon. Any donation will be appreciated. Thank you again for listening and goodbye.